Welcome to another Stock Market Media Group CEO interview. As part of a series to keep investors informed, we invite executives to tell their company's story. So sit back, listen in, and let's meet today's guest. Welcome into our latest edition of our CEO interviews. This edition is with the company Pharmacite Biotech. It is a biotechnology company that trades on the OTC markets under the ticker symbol PMCB. Today, we'll actually be speaking with two executives from Pharmacite. The first is the CEO, Kenneth L. Wagner, and the second is the Chief Scientific Officer, Walter H. Gunsberg. We will start off with Kenneth Wagner, and I guess the most obvious question to begin with would be the big elephant in the room, and that is the IND. With Austrianova having the cells at their facility now in Thailand, and now the process to encapsulate those cells can begin. The most obvious question is, first and foremost, where does Pharmacite stand in terms of finishing the IND? <laughs> Great question. Let me thank uh, the stock market media for, for this opportunity to, to really bring everybody up to speed in terms of where we are on the IND and everything else that we've been working on uh, since our last shareholder update. We're about done. Believe it or not, we have just about completed the investigational new drug application. We essentially have two documents left to draft, and we have to complete some of the information required in the five modules that, are, that make up the IND submission. Okay, when you talk about modules, this is certainly a different uh, terminology than we're used to. So could you explain a little bit about those modules for us? Well, module one contains a lot of administrative information. Module two are summaries of modules four and five. We're required to submit full study reports on all of the preclinical studies and the two clinical studies that have been conducted in the past. Because the FDA only has 30 days to review all the information that we submit, and our submission is going to be a major submission, these summaries allow the FDA to get a good picture of both the non-clinical and the clinical data that's collected without the need to go back and read word for word literally thousands of pages of reports to get an idea of the product and whether or not we meet the requirements. We are going to be providing very detailed summaries of all the non-clinical studies performed as well as the summaries of the two clinical studies that um, I think most people know about. Module three contains all of the chemistry, manufacturing, and controls information in connection with the manufacturing process. Basically, it describes how the product is manufactured, how it's packaged, its stability, specifications required to meet, how it's tested, and who performs each function. Module four contains all of the non-clinical study reports. Sometimes we refer to those as the preclinical studies. It contains sections for pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, um, and toxicology. And now just about done with that. Pharmacology and pharmacokinetics, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be relying on previously published literature. For toxicology, a little bit different. Um, we have generated reports from a number of, of animal studies that have been done in the past. We've got seven mice, mice studies, a couple of dog studies, a couple of rabbit studies, a ton of rat studies, and then we have one pig study. 
And then module five contains the clinical data that supports the trial. Those are really all the documents that relate to the two previous clinical trials. Well, that certainly clears up that for us with regard to the modules. Now, if you could let us know, uh, where are we on all of these modules? Well, there, there's not a lot left to do on any of the modules with the exception of module one. Within that module, we have to produce a protocol and an investigator's brochure. Those, two docu- those are two documents that have yet to be drafted although the protocol is in the process of being drafted. Well, you talk about the investigator brochure. What exactly is the investigator brochure and who will be reading this? Well, this is the, this is the roadmap that the investigator at a particular site, the cancer center, is going to be used, using to conduct the trial. It's a comprehensive document that summarizes a body of information having to do with everything involved in this trial. It's a document that's really intended to provide the investigator with insights that are necessary for how the study's managed and uh, and the study subjects. And IB uh, may introduce key aspects like uh, safety measures of uh, the, the clinical trial protocol, such as dosing, frequency of the dosing interview, interval, uh, methods of administration, safety monitoring, things like that. In a nutshell, it's a roadmap that provides the investigator with a clear understanding and, and the possible risk and adverse reactions and the specific tests and the observations and precautions that are needed for the clinical trial to be conducted precisely according to the trial design. Now, when you talk about the investigator brochure, it sounds like you're talking about individual investigators. Now, I know we have the principal investigator. Are the investigators different? Yes. Each clinical trial center will have a physician in charge of the clinical trial at that center. That's an investigator, capital I. When we talk about principal investigator, we're talking about the investigator that has responsibility for the entire trial and all of the investigators within his umbrella. And so when there are issues or questions that come up, the investigator at a particular site, because the most knowledgeable person involved in the trial will be the principal investigator, principal investigator will be contacted. Thank you. That certainly sums that up. Now, when Ostridova finishes their work, what is it you're looking for from them to complete the IND? One of the pieces of information that we need to submit with the IND, it'll be what actually enables us to finish the uh, IND is for Ostrianova to issue to us a certificate of analysis uh, for our clinical trial material requirements that the FDA set forth for us uh, in our in our pre-IND meeting and all that we know uh, in terms of the regulations that we have to follow. This is the last piece of information that will be obtained before we submit the IND to the FDA. It'll take us about a week to input that data, but once that certificate of analysis is available, it won't take long to submit the entire package. Okay, let's fast forward to the submission of the IND. After the investigational new drug application or the IND is submitted, what happens next? Once we have submitted the IND, we're going to be required to wait 30 days for the FDA to review everything, and there's a lot to review. Before the 30 days are up, the FDA can do a lot of things. They can ask for additional information, clarification. They can ask for us to produce other things that they had in mind and didn't tell us. But at the end of the 30 days, we'll know 
whether the FDA says, okay, they'll, we're prepared to issue a safe to proceed letter, or they may put us on a partial clinical hold while we generate more data that uh, they think needs to be generated before we get the green light to proceed. So that's sort of where we are in the IND. For the most part, we're there. Okay, great. Well, that's certainly good news, and it helps us understand the path forward a little bit better. Now, the trial design has changed uh, seemingly quite often. Can you help us understand uh, where are you in the trial design right now, and uh, what are some of the, uh, the changes, if any? We're done. We have, uh, it, it was an iterative process. It involved a lot of oncologists, but we're done. Of course, the purpose of our study is to investigate the efficacy and the safety of, of our product. We refer to our product as SIPCAPS. That's the name that we use with the FDA in combination with low-dose ifosfamide. That's the beginning of, of what uh, hasn't changed. What has changed uh, is the comparator. We, we have two comparators. We're going to be comparing our product to chemoradiation therapy with capecitabine and external beam radiation therapy. I'll call that EBRT or radiation therapy with stereostatic body radiation therapy, which is really radiation alone. So I'll call that SBRT. This study is going to include patients, again, this has not changed with locally advanced pancreatic cancer who have had a stable disease after four to six months of chemotherapy of abraxane and gemcitabine or fulfirinox. So we've, we've added another first-line therapy so as to broaden potential enrollment population into our trial. And, and what the patients have to be is whether they're Patients that have had, that have had a Braxane and gemcitabine or Forfirinox, their disease has to be stable and not able to be resected or operated on. So that's our patient population. They're going to be randomized one-to-one. -one, so each of those three groups are going to have an equal number. We, we have our experimental arm and then our two comparator arms. Well, with this finalized trial design, what will be the primary and secondary endpoints? The primary objective of this trial is to, as I said, assess the efficacy of SEPCAPs and ifosfamide compared to these two comparators determined by progression-free survival. How long can we keep the tumor at bay, not grow? That's our primary objective. But we have a lot of secondary objectives. Some are new. Some are the same that we had before. We have increased overall survival. So we're going to follow these patients, even though our primary objective is progression-free survival, we're going to follow these patients, all of them, to see how long, what the overall survival rate is with our therapy. We're going to have an increased response rate. We're going to be measuring the increase in the rate of conversion from inoperable to operable. We've added one uh, we're going to look at the marker CA199. We're going to see if it decreases. CA199 is a, is a marker, a simple blood test, basically. It measures the level of tumor-associated antigens found in blood. And these antigens are substances that cause the immune system to make a specific immune response. CA199 antigens are foreign substances generally released by pancreatic tumor cells and are good indicators whether tumor is growing, it's stable, or it's reducing in size. 
We're also going to be obviously looking at the overall quality of life. Our product is very different in terms of the side effect profile from any chemotherapy or any radiation or any combination of chemotherapy radiation. So we're going to be assessing that with a very lengthy questionnaire that has already been developed. We're going to be doing something else. We're going to be assessing not only the safety and the tolerability, but we're going to be looking at the immunological response of the CIPCAPS plus low-dose hyphosphamide. That's never been done. The study itself, of course, is going to be open-label, randomized, multi-centered, and of course, we have the active comparator, at, and it'll be a phase 2B. The study population has inclusion criteria. I won't go into it. There are 19 specific items that have to be met in, in order to be enrolled in this trial. It also has exclusion criteria. We have 21 of those. We are going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 plus patients in the trial. That's basically an overview of the study. Other than to say, just kind of give you an idea, patients that are randomized that are going to get our therapy are expected to participate in the study for about 24 weeks. After that, we'll be following up and watching them until disease progression, discontinuation, or their passing. The randomized patients that get capecitabine and EBRT are expected to participate in a study for approximately six weeks. That's, that's the time of, of that therapy and that particular arm. And then those people that get SBRT, which is that radiation alone, they get it for about three to five days of treatment based on the institutional practice, meaning a hospital that decides that for stable disease patients or for patients that have stable disease after being treated with first-line therapy, and they believe the right next step is this particular radiation. They give it for three to five days, and then they step back and watch and wait to see uh, when, they, when the disease progresses. That's about it at, at the 60,000-foot level, but the synopsis itself is complete. I wanted to add one thing. In addition to the synopsis, um, concurrently with drafting and finalizing the, the synopsis, uh, we've done a schedule of assessments that go with it, meaning, meaning that the dose, the dose modifications, how often our patients are going to be examined in all three arms, uh, the blood test, your analysis, this, you know, how often we're going to be doing the CA-19-9 testing, and last but not least, the imaging, taking pictures of the tumor. So all those things have actually already been done, no changes, all approved by not only our clinical trial leadership team, but our rather remarkable external advisory board members, all of whom are leading oncologists uh, throughout the United States, some of the major cancer centers uh, in the United States, frankly, in the world. Help us understand what the difference is between a trial synopsis and a trial protocol. The synopsis itself is mostly focused on, on the what question in terms of how you design the trial. What design? What patient population? What's the comparator? What are the endpoints? Things like that. So it's a summary document that precedes the development of the full protocol, which I'll tell you about in just a sec. What it has done, it served us to allow our team, our clinical trial leadership team, and our external oncology advisory board members to focus on the key design elements during this ongoing design phase. I must say it's an iterative process. So 
So with each step, largely influenced by what the answer is, you get another question. And then you, you get it to a point where it is essentially a detailed overview with all the major factors agreed to, and then you move on to the protocol. Now, the protocol is a much more involved document. It includes everything in the study synopsis itself, but this document is more fulsome. It describes the objectives, the design, the methodology, the statistical considerations, the organization of the trial. It also outlines the corporate and regulatory requirements, how you conduct the trial, the investigator's obligation. Every cancer center will have an investigator. And then those investigators report to our principal investigator, who, as you know, is Dr. Manuel Hidalgo. There, there are lots of details, you know, how you collect data, how you preserve tissue. Uh, basically, it's kind of the, the what and how, where the synopsis was the what. And so what are you doing and how do you do it? In a, in a nutshell, it's kind of a roadmap and a guideline. Not kind of, it is a roadmap and a guideline for conducting the trial. And most importantly, ensuring compliance to the intent of the design, the design being the key element. So those, that's a brief overview of the difference between the study synopsis and the protocol. This next question is uh, sort of in two parts. First, can the IND be filed without naming a contract research organization or a CRO? And then second, where are we in the process of naming a new contract research organization? Let me take the first question and the easiest question. There's no connection to our ability to file the IND and have a CRO selected. Where are we in terms of selecting a CRO? Great question. We're in the process. Let me tell you where we've, where we've been. Uh, we're going through a process that is quite involved so that we have the very best CRO we can possibly have for this particular type of trial and this kind of indication, pancreatic cancer, of the type that will be qualified to participate in the trial. So what we did uh, is we started identifying with the help of Dr. Hidago, Dr. Matthias Lohr, Dr. Linda Schur, who is our chief medical officer, Dr. Linda Mikalka, who is our chief strategist, also a physician, and with other doctors that, that we know and that Dr. Crabtree knows, we went out and identified for this type of trial with this many patients, 10 well-qualified potential candidates. And so we did a lot of work as a team, that's the clinical trial leadership team made up of all those people I talked about, including myself and uh, Lisa Gutman, who is the one of the co-founder of uh, Practical Clinical, who is sort of the administrator coordinator, the right hand for Dr. Scheer. And what we did, was we narrowed our 10 well-qualified at a 64,000-foot level down to seven. And then what we did as a group without Dr. Hidalgo, but everybody else on the clinical trial leadership team, actually either met with or had a very lengthy telephone conversation with seven candidates that we thought were potentially the candidates that we could narrow down, our goal being to get down to the top two. And so we went through a very lengthy process going from seven to four, and we now have four. And last week, 
we sent out a very detailed request for proposal. And so these four CROs have a lot of work to do in a relatively short period of time. They got a description of the trial. Obviously, they got a copy of the, the uh, study synopsis, but a very detailed request for proposal form. It's 30-some pages in small font. <laughs> and it also came with a very detailed uh, budget where everything they do that they charge for, they have to identify. So where we are in the process is that the four candidates that, that we think are the, the top four, they have 30 days to submit their bid. And then there will be a very detailed uh, assessment of the bid, looking at the detailed capabilities, the resources, the team, scope and effectiveness, and what have you. It includes a lot of information. And then we have to, as a group, do an analysis where we can compare apples to apples. It takes a long time because these CROs package things in a little bit different ways for us to make sure that this bid is really X plus this amount from that bid, and they're doing the same thing. So that'll take a while. We're going to pick the top two. And then once we pick the top two, we will go and either they will come to us or we'll go to them. And we're going to meet the individuals involved on their team that they put forward to manage this trial. Another name that shareholders are certainly familiar with is Imaging Endpoints. Will the company still be utilizing this company for imaging? And if not, have you already selected a new firm to do this, what we obviously would consider crucial work? Um, good question. Uh, no, they are not. And, and they're not principally because we decided uh, as, a, as a team and based upon the advice of our external advisory board members that we don't, we don't want a central imaging uh, at this level of, 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 of a trial. We're going to do site imaging. Every one of the cancer sites that we're going to start with, and, and basically they're institutional or academic settings, have the capability of site imaging on their own. So there's, there's no need for having one group do the central imaging. So it'll be imaging at each of the major cancer centers. And like the CRO, we'll be going through a, a process to evaluate their capabilities. But the hospitals that are on our short list to be part of that study are all extremely capable in terms of imaging. And the imaging and response assessments that you know, we have in this particular patient population are fairly standardized. So it's not conducive and it's far more expensive to do central imaging than it is site imaging. And so we've decided uh, for all those reasons to do site imaging. I sat through a couple of ASCO meetings and uh, listened to some of the clinical study sites, and the company has certainly named those in press releases as well. I assume that uh, there will be a number of clinical study sites throughout the United States, as mentioned before. Will some of those sites still be the same? And can you tell us a little bit about the site selection process and when that will occur? All of the cancer centers that we identified in our first ASCO meeting and in our second ASCO meeting are on board, but not officially. But there are a lot of others that, uh, that have been identified and have expressed an interest in getting involved. They want to know more about the therapy. Now, what, what was an added benefit, even though it was timely, took time to do, 
was to put together this external advisory board of oncologists from some of the leading cancer centers in the world. They all know about this technology. And so we automatically have expanded the, the scope of potential candidates in part of the trial. And I'll tell you, they, they, they sort of run the gamut. Uh, you know, we, we had representatives from the Mayo Clinic, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, University of California up in San Francisco. The list goes on and on. These are major cancer centers. Of course, in addition to where Dr. Hidalgo practices, which is the uh, Rosenberg Clinical Cancer Center in, in the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So we have a longer, we have a growing list. Let me talk about the, the uh, site selection process. It's pretty involved, it, it's involved, but because we're going to focus on institutional cancer centers initially, and depending upon the rate of accrual, uh, uh, we may not need as many cancer centers as we had anticipated. On the other hand, we may need more. The process is to uh, put together the list, which we now have, and that list uh, uh, that we've put together uh, comes from all of the physicians within our organization and the doctors that are on our advisory board. Uh, when we select the CRO, the CROs, they all had cancer centers in mind. In fact, when we did our preliminary information call or meeting, there was a whole list of cancer centers that they wanted to make sure were in this trial because of their relationship with them and their confidence that they can deliver. And so the list has grown quite a bit. Uh, we uh, are in the process of developing this light the site selection criteria, and, and then, of course, it's fairly detailed, and then we'll be doing a, a site um, evaluation qualification discussion among our leadership team when we um, look at a particular site in the queue to join us. We're going to go visit them, and uh, it'll include a visit with our CRO, likely Dr. Shear, and someone from the company, uh, likely me, and then there will be a final decision, but uh, we have a long list right now, and the list is growing. It was certainly good to hear you mention the name Dr. Manuel Hidalgo, and it's good to know that he will be the principal investigator in the upcoming clinical trial. For those folks who have invested in Pharmacite more recently and may not be familiar with him, tell us a little more about Dr. Hidalgo. In our judgment, he's one of the leading oncologists in the world particularly in the area of pancreatic cancer. He's a protege of Dr. Von Hoff. He worked with Dr. Von Hoff facility at a hospital over in Texas for a number of years. He's, he is truly internationally renowned, both as an oncologist and a clinical investigator. Remember I told you that, that at each cancer center, there will be a, an investigator, capital I, and then the person that sort of is in charge of the investigator is the principal investigator, the PI. He has been involved uh, as a, not just a clinical investigator, but a PI in innumerable trials. He has assisted or developed within his own facility more than 30 novel oncology drugs, several of which are for, were for pancreatic cancer. Uh, when he first approached us, to get involved with our technology, 
He was the head of the clinical development at the Spanish National Research Cancer Center in Madrid and the co-director of drug development and gastrointestinal oncology at John Hopkins University. He approached us because he believes not only does this therapy has a, have an application perfectly suited for pancreatic cancer, it's perfectly suited for liver cancer. Another very difficult cancer to treat because you can't get enough of whatever you're using to try and kill the cancer cell if that tumor is embedded in the middle of the liver. Gosh, Dr. Hidalgo co-founded, and I believe he's still the chairman of the International Pancreatic Research Team. He co-founded it with Dr. Von Hoff. That research team meets, uh, it has representatives from around the world, leading oncologists, and they meet once a month. And their goal is to get to a point to make a marked improvement in how pancreatic cancer is diagnosed and treated to the point of eliminating it. And as I mentioned, he's currently the clinical director of the Rosenberg, uh, Rosenberg Clinical Cancer Center. And of course, he's the chief in division of hematology and oncology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and the professor of Harvard Medical School. He is among the best and he's still fully committed. I did mention that he uh, is a member of our clinical trial leadership team. He's functioning as a consultant right now, not as the principal investigator. It won't be until we pass the baton and we enroll a little bit before we enroll our first patient. Will he no longer be a consultant to the company? He'll be the principal investigator running uh, this trial from a high level. Well, Ken, we'll wrap up this uh, portion of the interview by asking you maybe to look at this a little more personally. After years of working at this, what are your thoughts about uh, what can be considered the biggest event in this company's history, at least with regard to the submission of the IND? Uh, what are your personal thoughts uh, as we are on the uh, doorstep of that event? Um, I, I've been at this full time since early January of 2014. And to sort of look back at the path that we have followed and the things that we were required to do and the highs and the lows, you know, there's a feeling of relief that we're here, that we, we have now a clear path forward, but we're super excited. I mean, okay, the IND gets filed, we get an open IND and we, we start the process of enrolling all the sites and what have you. What has always driven me, and certainly uh, those that have been with us since the beginning, is that we can really make a difference in an area, pancreatic cancer, that is a very, very lethal disease, where there has been no marked improvement of any consequence when you look at the big picture. The last breakthrough was the combination of Araxane and gemcitabine, and you get, a, I think it was a median survival of increasing at 1.8 months. We have a chance of doing something that has never been done before that I, that I know of, and that's taking patients that have no hope. They've gone through first-line therapy and they don't get any more benefit and they've taken off first-line therapy and it's just a matter of time before they pass away. We believe we're gonna give those patients a new lease on life, but we have the potential of giving them a new lease on life. We're gonna save lives, or we're gonna make their lives a lot better than would otherwise be without this therapy. Remember that in the first trial of this therapy, using the dose of iphosphamide that we're gonna be using, 
there were no treatment-related side effects. We've had so many calls from so many people wanting to know when our therapy is going to be ready to go. They're on a particular chemotherapy regime and they can't take it. A lot of people saying they, they, they just, the quality of life just isn't worth it anymore. We have a chance of changing that paradigm. That's amazing. Yes, it absolutely would be. And Ken Wagner, thank you very much for your time. We will now turn our attention to the chief scientific officer of Pharmacite, that is Dr. Walter H. Gunsberg. And he is joining us from Singapore, actually, where he is at currently. And Dr. Gunsberg, welcome in. And we'd like to start with... Uh, Maybe bring everyone up to speed on the process. Now that the cells are in your court, so to speak, what is the process of encapsulating those cells for all of the new folks out there who are not familiar with it? What we're doing here is we're taking a tested cell line, which has been subjected to a whole battery of different tests by different external partners and shown to be safe and functional. And we're taking that cell line and we're going to bring it into our GMP facility. We're going to encapsulate it and we're going to grow the cells up inside the capsules to form a final product, which will then be released and sent back to Pharmacite for the clinical trial. So the steps that are involved here basically are that the cells are unthawed. The cells have to be grown up. That takes about two weeks to grow up enough cells so that one actually can begin the encapsulation. And it's important to note that when we do the encapsulation, we encapsulate with a low cell number per capsule. And we have a second grow up step in which the cells grow up inside the capsules to completely fill the available space. And the reason we do that is to make sure that the capsules are equally filled, that we have the same number of cells per capsule, but also to ensure that there are no cells on the surface of the capsule because having cells on the surface of the capsule would risk that the cells would be recognized by the immune system of the patient, and that might cause some sort of rigid response. So we make sure that all the cells are within the capsule and well protected by the capsule material itself. Once the capsules are full of cells, we can proceed to the next step, which is to take those capsules, to put them into syringes, and to freeze the syringes down. The syringes are then stored at minus 80. They have a shelf life of up to a number of years. So once the product is actually stored at minus 80, it's a very stable product, it can be transported, can be shipped, can be tested. And the cells then have to be tested within those capsules for their properties. So the things we're looking at again are safety in terms of are the cells sterile within the capsules? And secondly, do the cells do what they're supposed to do? Those tests have to be completed before the syringes with the capsules containing the cells can be shipped back to Pharmacite. Dr. Gunsberg, is there anything that Ostrianova will do differently while encapsulating Pharmacite's cells, given that this material will be for a clinical trial under the watchful eye of the FDA in the United States, rather than uh, some of the other stuff that you have to uh, produce there at Ostrianova? Well, there's a huge difference, Ken, between a lab scale encapsulation and a clinical encapsulation like we're talking about now. So the lab scale encapsulation, which is something which we do routinely at our facility in Singapore, is basically taking cells, encapsulating them in a very well 
organized process which we can actually intervene into at any stage. So when we're doing that process, if anything happens, if anything needs to be changed, if any parameter needs to be tweaked, we can easily do that. But here, with this clinical encapsulation, very large scale, very reproducible system, which we're working on here, we have to basically have a process which will run from the beginning to the end without any intervention perfectly. So everything has to work according to preset definitions. This process is using custom-built machinery. This is machinery which has been built especially for this process, for our company, and is unique in the world. Nobody else has this machinery. There are at least four major pieces of machinery that have to all work together and allow the whole process to run through successfully. So it's a huge difference in terms of the actual process that's involved to what's been done up to now. The other thing is, of course, that we have to do this under so-called good manufacturing practice, which means we have to control especially the quality, the environment, and we have to do that with a lot of documentation as well. So what that means is that all steps of the process have to be documented. These documents have to be set up in advance. We have to check that the documents actually do what they're supposed to do, describe what the process should be, then they have to be adhered to during the process, and someone has to check that the process has been adhered to exactly as it's written in those documents. It also means that all incoming material has to be tested. It's the correct material. It means that all suppliers who supply us that incoming material have to be qualified, they have to be audited, they have to be checked out to make sure that they are off a standard able to supply us with the necessary materials. We have to follow standard procedures throughout to ensure reproducibility. And at the end of the process, as I've mentioned already, we have to do a lot of testing and checking that the product is that what it should be. So all this takes time. This is actually one of the major factors in a GMP production is the quality side of it. That takes a tremendous amount of time. We've generated over 4,000 documents setting up this process. And we're still generating documents as we go forward. And these documents are not just written, but they have to be checked by a number of people. Usually four people will check each document, sign off on each document. Then the staff has to be trained on the document. We have to examine the staff that they actually know what the training has done. Then they have to execute the document. Whilst they're executing the document and doing the manufacturing, somebody else is checking that they're doing it correctly. We call that a four eyes principle. So someone is always ticking off what the other staff member has done to make sure they've done it correctly. And then at the end of the day, all the documents which are generated have to be audited by our quality assurance department and checked to make sure that there are no mistakes and everything is perfectly in order. To give you an example, the tests that have been done so far on the cell line by Eurofins, there's been a battery of tests. Those tests were completed physically many, many weeks ago, but it's taken all these this time up to today to actually get the documentation, the paperwork in place to allow Eurofins to actually release those cells with a C of A to us for the next step in the manufacturing. So these things take a long time. And I think that's one of the differences between lab scale encapsulation and the sort of encapsulation we're doing today. And this is, of course, the industry standard. This is required by the FDA, by any regulator, and it's the norm in the industry. But it's one of the things that makes this very expensive and a very slow process, unfortunately.
You've mentioned the testing. Now, what are some of these key tests that will be conducted and how are they important to the completion of Pharmacite's IND application? Okay, so the tests we will be doing at the end of the process fall into three major groups. The first one is on safety. That's very important. That's being conducted by an external lab, which has been audited by the FDA, which has a good track record on conducting these safety tests and is a totally independent company to any of the other companies involved here. So that's making sure that the safety of the patient is put foremost and is not compromised in any way. And those safety tests are around sterility, making sure the product is sterile, making sure the product doesn't have any bacteria in it, any fungi, yeast, or mycoplasma, and that the product doesn't contain any fever-causing agents, any endotoxins. So that's the one set of tests that has to be performed. The second set of tests is on identity. We have to be sure that the product is actually the correct product. So we have to look that the cells are the correct cells and that the number of capsules in each syringe that's produced is correct and that the size of those capsules is correct. And the third step is that we have to look at product efficiency. We have to check that the product does what it's supposed to do, that it's producing the enzyme, that it's able to kill tumor cells. And those two latter groups of tests, product identity and product efficiency, are things that we will be carrying out at our facility. When we have all the results of those tests together, we will generate a COA, and that COA will be shipped together with the product to pharmacites in the U.S. Dr. Gunsberg, the treatment that Pharmacite will be taking into the clinic is considered a biologic. Can you explain to us a little bit about how that will need to be treated differently than, say, a single molecule drug that most companies take to trial? Obviously, we're dealing with a living cell product here. So this is a product which is not killed, dead, or a chemical, and something that's very simple, but it's a living cell product. Each cell is growing. It's growing during the production process. It needs to be alive when it's actually frozen down. It needs to be alive when it gets into the patient. So this takes with it a whole new set of challenges that we wouldn't normally have when you're producing a small molecule drug, which is just basically a, a chemical. The first challenge, of course, is that the whole process from beginning to end has to be done in a way that is so-called aseptic. That means it prevents any contamination getting in. That means that for the whole of the duration of the production, where we're growing cells up in media, which is particularly suited for cells to grow, but unfortunately is also suited for other things to grow like bacteria, fungi, and yeast, we have to ensure that only the cells are in there, only the cells are growing, that everything is sterile right the way through to the end. In a normal production of a small molecule compound, a chemical, you would do a so-called end filtration, an end sterilization, where you would make sure the product is sterile by either filtering it or by sterilizing it in some way. That's not possible here because we're talking about a living product. So that's one of the first challenges. It's a long time to make sure you have a production running without any contamination getting in. We feel confident that this is something that we're able to do, but it's still a tremendous challenge from the production side. The second thing is, of course, that because it's a living product, every cell is slightly different to the next cell. No 
living cell in our body is identical to the next living cell, there are always small differences. That means we have to do with a mass, a population of cells, which is slightly changing all the time. And that brings challenges from the point of view of how to grow these cells, how to characterize them, how to make sure that the product is, in broadest terms, the same product at all stages of the production. And we've addressed those challenges over the last year or so by doing a lot of testing to make sure that as we grow these cells over the periods that are required for the production, the cells do not change in any way, that they stay the same, that it's at the end of the production, the same product as the beginning of the production. So those are just two of the challenges I think that we face with this sort of biological product as opposed to a more classical, uh, small molecule or chemical product. Obviously, as Pharmacite readies to take this treatment into the clinic in the United States, the product itself, Cell in a Box, has changed dramatically from the earlier years. Can you maybe tell us some ways that it has improved? Well, Ken, the original product was manufactured before the current GMP regulation. It was manufactured a long time ago, according to the guidelines in place at that time. And the product at that time was manufactured as best we could with the equipment and manufacturing capabilities that were available. It was also identified and characterized according to the techniques that were available at that time. Since then, the world has moved on on many, many different levels. So for instance, we now have techniques where we can sequence whole genomes in a day or days. That was not possible back then. Back then, we needed years to sequence genomes. So the techniques which we're using now to identify and characterize the product are much better and much more advanced than were even available at that time. So one of the great advantages, I think, of this product compared to the original is reproducibility. We now have a really well characterized, really reproducible product, which we are manufacturing in a way which we can guarantee that every time we do this manufacture, the product will be the same. That sort of reproducibility and characterization wasn't possible back then, and therefore the product had more variation in it. We've also tied down a lot of other things. Back then, we had a product which didn't have any shelf life. It was produced, and you had to use it within one week manufacture. Now we have a frozen product which has a shelf life of years. That means we can store it, we can transport it, we can go to distant sites, we can have it ready for when the patient walks in. It's a tremendous advance in how this product has been developed. So those are some of the some of the aspects which I think have been improved dramatically since the first edition, so to speak. And as we close out this interview, I'll ask you the same as I asked uh, Ken Wagner. Give us your personal thoughts uh, as we enter the home stretch here and we're even closer to the clinic now than we've ever been. I'm just really happy to see that this product is, is going into these trials very soon in the U.S., I think we have a great product here. I think it has a lot of applications, not only in pancreatic cancer, but I think this sort of technology can be used for so many other things, and both in cancer, but also in other types of serious disease. And the fact that we're getting this into patients now, we're showing again that it works, is going to be a great milestone for the development, not only for this indication, but also for many other indications as we move forward. And that will conclude our latest edition of our CEO interviews. Today, we were with 
Pharmacite Biotech, a biotechnology company that trades on the OTC market under the ticker symbol PMCB. I'd like to thank Kenneth L. Wagner, the CEO at Pharmacite, and Dr. Walter H. Gunsberg, the Chief Scientific Officer at Pharmacite, for joining me, and we appreciate you listening. This has been another Stock Market Media Group CEO interview. Keep listening as executives continue to tell their story and investors stay informed on the companies they own right here on stockmarketmediagroup.com.